0: In July of this year, the British government released a review into modern work practices, including the gig economy and zero-hours contracts, among other things. The review, which was commissioned by Prime Minister Theresa May, received a mixed response. Welcomed by companies such as Deliveroo, it was at the same time criticized by trade unions. The Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain was no exception, and a few days following the release of the report published an extensive review of the review. It detailed the points it disagreed with, but also highlighted a few recommendations that it supported. In the hope of having an open and frank discussion on the review, the IWGB invited the review's author, Matthew Taylor, to participate in a conversation with the union's general secretary, Jason Moyer-Lee. Taylor graciously accepted. Conscious of the possibility of being accused of bias, we decided to allow Taylor to speak freely and without interruption. The conversation between the two is presented without any editing, even maintaining every awkward ah and um. Here it goes. The IWGB presents Unworkable. Episode 3. Reviewing the Taylor Review. So we've come here to the RSA to talk to the report's author, Matthew Taylor. Matthew is the chief executive of the RSA, but before that he spent decades working in various policy roles within the Labour Party, most notably authoring the party's 2005 manifesto and heading Tony Blair's policy unit. So, in conversation with Matthew, we have Jason Moyer Lee, General Secretary of the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain, the IWGB. Jason and the IWGB campaign for the rights of migrant workers and workers in the so called gig economy. The union has brought uh, and won landmark test cases against several courier companies and is now awaiting the outcome of an employment status case and union recognition case against a food delivery company, Deliveroo. Um, the outcome might well be announced before this podcast is aired, so I apologize for that. Um, and I'm Emiliano Melino, and I'm the press officer of the IWGB. So, gentlemen, welcome to, Unwork- to Unworkable, and thank you both for being here.
1: Uh, is this the first time you two meet? No, uh, Jason and I had a conversation uh, during the employment, uh, during the review uh, process. Um, Okay, so
0: um, following the release of of your report, Matthew, the IWGB released a a response to your review, which I, I think had some points of agreement, some criticisms. And our hope today is to look at both and see if we can find a way to to move forward. Um, I think to start off, it would be good to get from both of you a sense of what you think is the current state of affairs uh, and the problems with the gig economy. And Matthew, um, if you want to kick us off and and what your diagnostic is.
1: Yeah, thank you. So I I think an initial point to make is that um, the focus of a lot of uh, uh, IWGB's work Um, and its important work, is on the gig economy in particular. Uh, The focus of my report was broader than that. Uh, My remit was broader than that. And I think probably I acted quite early on in the review to widen that remit even further. So what I was concerned with really was the quality of work in the British economy and in particular the quality of work uh, for people um, at the lower ends of the British economy. Now part of what I was asked to do was to look specifically at new ways of working, atypical ways of working, and gig working is is one of that. But in my report as a whole, probably what I say and recommend in relation to gig work represents, you know, probably about a fifth of the overall content uh, of the report. Um, in terms of gig work in particular, we are in a kind of complex position where Court cases uh, are reaching judgments. Um, We had the case about Uber. Of course, that's gone now to a higher court. We've got the case about Deliveroo. We've had Pimlico Plumbers, a whole number of different cases. And I think one of the things that Jason and I will want to talk about in a few minutes is whether or not what that means is that the law is clear, which I think is Jason's view, and it's simply a matter of implementing it, or whether, which is my view, the law is not clear and that we need to uh, restate the law, to clarify the law in primary uh, legislation. So you see, mainly the problem is that
0: at the moment with the gig economy, the 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 law is not really clear on on what the rights are of workers the obligations are of employers.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we say what the problem is, I mean, I think there are there are a number of issues. So one question, a question which we addressed, is this question of clarity about the law. Why it is that it's relying on court cases, court cases that go through several stages. Uh, for us to be able to determine the uh, status, rights, tax status of people who work in the gig economy, but of course there are other issues. Um, you know, one issue is that it's clear that in the gig economy, people's experiences are very different. You know, we went to—I remember—we were as part of our process. We went on the road, went to a whole number of different venues, and one place, in Coventry, for example, we had a lively argument in the audience between a highly enthusiastic Uber driver. And an unhappy Uber driver. And as we say in the report, uh, you can find two people doing the same job who will describe that job in radically different terms. Now, that is a challenge for any policy because, clearly, a policy which doesn't address the concerns of people who feel they're being exploited uh, is um, negligent. On the other hand, a policy which stops lots of people doing something which they say they want to do and they enjoy doing could be seen as being overbearing. And that's, that's a challenge. And Jason, do you care to respond and also give us your diagnostic of of the situation?
2: Yeah, so I can start by saying that we we realize that the report uh, goes beyond just the so-called gig economy. Um, And in fact, in our response, uh, we set out in the very beginning that there are a number of issues that the report touches on, such as agency workers or genuine uh, independent contractors who are in business on their own account. Um, which we don't really count within our membership, um, and we don't have much experience with. And for that reason, we've uh, been clear that we're not responding on those issues. We, of course, are uh, responding to the issues which directly affect or are intended to affect our members. Um, so as far as the so-called gig economy is concerned, I think the fundamental problem, uh, Matthew's right to point out we have a different view on this, is a lack of enforcement of existing law. Uh, And it might be worthwhile for listeners just to briefly set out what that law is. Uh, There are three main categories under which you can perform work, uh, so far as the so-called gig economy is concerned. You can be an employee. You can be what they call a limby worker. Or you can be an independent contractor who's in business on their own account, and they have customers and clients. Now, an employee is what we think of it as, uh, someone on PAYE with maximum employment rights. Uh, an independent contractor and business on their own account is someone uh, that we would normally think of as a self-employed person. They're genuinely running their own affairs, they do their own taxes, they have customers or clients. A Limby worker is a sort of halfway house. It's a category of self-employed, which is an extremely important point. They do their own taxes, they have quite a bit of flexibility and autonomy, but they carry out their work as part of someone else's business rather than their own. And for that reason, they have a number of the employment rights, but not all, that employees have. Um, So that includes holidays and minimum wage, protection from discrimination, trade union rights, etc. Now, the fundamental problem in the gig economy is that the employers say, the people uh, performing uh, delivery services and giving people rides in Uber cars and whatnot, uh, the employers say these guys are independent contractors essentially running their own small businesses. We say, and we say the law says, that they are workers. And case after case, all of the high-profile cases that have been in the news, the judgment has come down saying, this is very clear, uh, these people are workers. And lots of the wording of the judgments have been scathing of the employer's attempts to hide behind fictitious contract terms um, and carry on essentially a big fiction in order to deprive these people of rights that they're legally entitled to. And we've seen this with the Uber case, with the CitySprint case, with the Excel case, Uh, with Pimlico Plumbers, and we've seen it with two other cases, um, uh, the doctor's laboratory and eCourier, where the employers, before even getting to a hearing, uh, admitted that they had unlawfully deprived these workers of rights. Undoubtedly, they did so because the legal advice was that the law was clear and they were bound to lose their case. Um, So we say the fundamental problem is a lack of enforcement of existing law, uh, and it's quite easy to understand uh, why there's no enforcement. Government essentially enforces almost no aspect of employment law, very few exceptions. Um, employment tribunal fees introduced in July 2013 have seen a reduction of about 70% of cases, uh, and there's essentially no consequences for unlawful behavior. So in the City Sprint case, the implication of the judgment was that the company had been unlawfully depriving its workers of rights they were legally entitled to for years. And the only consequence was that they had to pay two days annual leave. So we say it's entirely unsurprising, given this lack of enforcement and how difficult it is for claimants to take out cases, that these companies are unlawfully depriving their workers of rights.
0: I know, Matthew, you want to address the issue of worker status uh, and, and, and whether it's self-employed or not, but I want to leave that for later on in the discussion. And, um, If you could, before that, please give us um, just a quick intro, as fast as you can, about how your report looked to tackle some of these issues, the issues of the gig economy, um, just to set the scene.
1: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, Jason's view uh, is an interesting view, and I'm not a lawyer, uh, and I think if we had 20 lawyers in the room, we would probably find that most of them didn't agree, but some of them did. We held three legal roundtables as part of our process and uh, at those roundtables for example uh, at each one I think that uh, there was at least one trade union representative and at none of those roundtables did anybody assert that all workers were self-employed and I'd be interested in a sense as to whether or not what Jason means by that is that all zero hours workers, for example, because they, too, are classified in that worker category. Are... I wanted to
0: see if we could address these issues. I'm trying to get to
1: the, the point here. And the, okay. point, the point that I'm making is that uh, because I don't share the view that the law uh, is clear, um, it was uh, a key recommendation. Uh, of the review which was that we should try to draft primary legislation uh, which addresses the criteria which are used to define whether or not somebody is a worker or uh, self-employed. The added complexity to this issue of course is that our tax system has two categories whereas our employment system has three uh, categories. Um, So we felt uh, We should uh, try to define that in primary legislation. We made a particular point that we thought that um, personal service, so at the moment quite a lot of companies, actually not really gig work uh, companies, but quite a few of the kind of delivery companies, for example, use substitution. So they use the fact that somebody can uh, really or notionally get someone else to do their round. They use that as a kind of of get-out-of-jail card in terms of whether or not, the people who work for them, are workers uh, or not. And that's why, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people working in that kind of delivery area who are currently not getting workers' rights because of that substitution clause, which is taken into consideration by the courts. Now, we argued that we didn't think substitution should be a sufficient grounds for saying that somebody was not a worker and not entitled to workers' rights. Instead, we say that we thought that the primary focus... Should be on control and supervision. Now, not the exclusive focus, but with the primary focus, should be on control and supervision, which is, by the way, the same criteria used by HMRC, the tax authorities, in determining whether somebody is an employee or uh, self employed. So, our view was we do need primary legislation. And uh, again, you know, and I think, Jason, I just have to agree to differ on this. You know, I point out the Law Society, who probably, I guess, would be seen to be the most authoritative body in this area endorsed our view that there was a need for primary legislation and endorsed our view, to use a phrase in the report, that the law needs to do more of the work and the courts need to do less of the work in terms of trying to introduce greater clarity to the system.
0: Jason, do to respond?
2: Yeah, so just briefly on the on the self-employed um, point, I, I find it almost incredible that this point's still being debated. Uh, it, as a matter of law, limby workers... Mm-hmm. Are absolutely and clearly a category of self-employed.
1: Jason, can I just ask, just to clarify, are you therefore saying all 0, that zero hours workers are self-employed?
2: If they're a limby worker, they're self-employed. You can be an employee in a zero hours contract but, as well.
1: Yeah, but if they're if they're work if they're classified as workers, that mm. is to say they don't have full employment rights, like zero hours workers, who don't have rights to unfair. Dismissal, uh, etc. You're you're saying that they should be seen as self-employed The reason I'm asking that is that if we were to classify all people who are currently Working under a worker arrangement. That is to say they have workers rights rather than employee rights We'd be talking about hundreds of thousands of workers uh, Hundreds of thousands of people being reclassified as self-employed and those people then probably not bearing a national insurance cost for their uh, employers Um, which would have an enormous impact on the uh, exchequer. I mean, we're talking about, I don't know, hundreds of millions, possibly a billion or so of national insurance income lost if those people, like zero-hours workers, who are currently seen as workers and not self-employed, were redefined as self-employed and not carrying a national insurance charge. I'm just interested if that's that's your argument.
2: Well, I've seen zero-hour workers that are classified as employees, right? So we have, for example, members at the union who are outsourced uh, workers at the University of London who work in catering or cleaning, who are on zero hours contracts. Um, they're strictly controlled and supervised. Um, they do the hours, essentially, that they're allowed to do. Um, they're on paye, etc. They're employees on zero hours contracts. Limb workers. Do they have
1: rights? To un- they, do they have unfair dismissal rights?
2: Yeah, we would certainly assert they have unfair dismissal rights, and I think right. it'd be hard to say they don't, considering that they're being treated as employees. So I think
1: this is this is what gets to the nub of the issue, which is why it's complex. Is I think what Jason's basically saying is that a lot of people who are currently described as workers with workers' rights are actually employees. So I think what you're saying is that you want to uh, you don't want a tripartite system. You want a dual system. A dual system which they. There are employees with full rights, and then there are self-employed people, um, and some of those self-employed people would also have workers' rights.
2: That's the current system. Well, there are two categories of self-employed. Right? The Supreme, I'm, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. The Supreme Court set it out in Bates uh, von Winkelhoff v. Clyden Co. 2014 case. In the passage of Lady Hale, who was at the time deputy president of the Supreme Court, paragraphs 24, 25, and 31 yeah. sets it out with absolute clarity that there are two categories of self-employed. One is a Limby worker who carries out their work as part of someone else's business, and they're the ones that have rights to paid holidays and minimum wage and trade union rights and automatic pension enrollments and this type of thing. And the other category are the independent contractors who are in business on their own account, who are genuinely independent, who contract with clients and customers. So all of the recent uh, cases, gig economy cases that have been in the news, Pimlico Plumbers, Uber, CitySprint, Excel, eCourier, Doctor's Laboratory, all of these cases, what was admitted or decided was that they were Limby workers. Their self-employed status did not change. They just changed to a different type of self-employed person. So it's patently incorrect as a matter of law, as the review has repeatedly done, to say that there's a difference between a Limby worker and a self-employed person. A Limby worker is a subset of self-employment
1: so uh, we, we should move on I guess but just 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 to be thing. just I understand that's your position Jason it's not a position shared by the majority of lawyers I spoke to it's not the position I think shared by the law associations that I spoke to yes the case you cite is right but I, I would argue that part of the problem we've got is that we work in this kind of case-by-case basis. And, you know, we don't know what's going to come out of the next case and the next case and the next case. And that's why the law is so complicated. I certainly think uh, that um, the Treasury and Inland Revenue would be extremely concerned about moving to a world whereby workers were classified, you know, 1.2 million zero hours workers, agency workers were classified as self-employed because that would have a massive hit on the exchequer. And not only would it have a massive hit on the exchequer. But also it would further incentivize employers to move people from employee status to uh, this kind of worker-stroke self-employed status because they would immediately save themselves 13.8%. So one of the issues I would have about an attempt to say that all workers are self-employed and therefore don't carry a national insurance charge would be it would would – the effect, in my view – would be to encourage a widespread casualization of the labor market because you'd have a very strong incentive uh, for companies to try to reclassify as many people as possible uh, into this group. So, yes, in that group, they might if they lose court cases, uh, have to respect the employment rights of those people, but they wouldn't have to pay national insurance on them. And if you talk to the people who run gig platforms, a whole variety of people in these areas, the fundamental thing motivating their business model is not actually the avoidance of employment rights. It's the avoidance of national insurance payments seems to me that what jason's offering them or would suggest is that 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 possibility of having people as workers but not having to pay national insurance on them uh, would be uh, an opportunity which businesses would be you know very eager to exploit. Okay.
2: J- just sorry just very quickly to be clear it's not what i'm offering i'm just describing the current state of the law and i think we'll just have to uh, agree to differ on what the current
1: state of the law is. Yeah, i agree.
0: Okay, so moving on. Um there is, I think, one of the major points um, in uh, the IWE's response to the report has to do with the process. And uh, I'll let Jason kick off here. Um, if you could introduce to us your, 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 your criticism of the process undertaken by the review.
2: Yeah, so there, there are a few points that we've raised, uh, which we think are legitimate concerns about process. Um, the, the first one is out of four panel members, uh, one of the, well, just to set the record straight, there was Matthew Taylor. There was um, the person who was director of the GLA, so a government enforcement agency. Um, there was a solicitor from a corporate law firm, um, and there was a business person, former founder and CEO of One Fine Stay. Now, out of those four, uh, there was no trade union representation. There was no worker representation. Uh, One of the uh, four panel members uh, was from a firm which has a reputation as being uh, almost always on the side of employers. It's Pinsent Masons. If you look at their website uh, in the employment section, there's tons of information boasting about how they advise employers and how to deal with strikes. um, And there's comments saying, you know, they genuinely understand the frustrations of the employer, et cetera, et cetera. The employment solicitor in particular, who was on the panel, had written an article uh, proposing uh, that ACAS be given powers to block a strike even if it was supported by a lawful ballot in certain circumstances. Um, and her profile said something along the lines of uh, she's used to dealing uh, with uh, you know, high-powered management teams or something like this. Uh, So that's one concern. Now, another concern is that Greg Marsh, who is the former uh, founder and CEO of uh, One Fine Stay, which is my understanding is it's sort of a luxury uh, version of Airbnb, uh, was a Deliveroo investor. Um, Now, this wasn't disclosed to the public, as far as I'm aware. Uh, I understand Matthew's position as he disclosed it to the government and to Matthew. um, But he held shares in Deliveroo. Uh, And he was still an investor during part of the review. So he didn't sell his shares, according to the Financial Times, uh, until four months after the review began, uh, which means that he was sitting on the review for two months as a Deliveroo investor. Um, Now, I think, one, I think that conflicts him. That's a conflict of interest to be a shareholder in one of the companies that, in theory, would be most affected by the recommendations of this review. Um, I think the fact that this wasn't disclosed to the public, even though uh, it's clearly a matter of of public interest, and that can be seen by the flurry of media coverage when we broke this story, Um, I think that's problematic. Uh, And, you know, we don't know the terms under which he sold his shares. Did Deliveroo buy those shares back uh, with some sort of tacit understanding that he'd go easy on them? We don't know. We've put in an FOI request to find out more detail on this. Uh, But finally, even if he had divested his shares before the review began, which isn't the case, uh, the fact that he was willing to invest in a company like Deliveroo, uh, in our view, speaks volumes uh, uh, on how he values or doesn't workers' rights and how he sees the situation uh, in the so-called gig economy. Um, And I think it it defies belief that this uh, person, a Deliveroo investor, Out of the entire population of the UK, was considered, uh, you know, one of the most qualified people to be on this review. So those are my main concerns with process. The other one uh, is something we put in our reply that I tried on a couple occasions to get a one-to-one meeting with uh, Matthew. Now I understand the review asked us to go present at one of his events and whatnot, uh, which we were happy to do. Um, But we found that form of engagement, you know, I can see some benefits to it, but somewhat superficial and doesn't really um, provide for back and forth uh, or, or, or whatnot, uh, or going into depth in policy proposals. Um, Matthew didn't answer my emails, and then I was told that he didn't have time to meet with us. So I'm glad we're now having a conversation and getting into these issues, but I would have liked to have been able to get into the issues in more detail before the results were released.
1: Yeah, so um, a couple of things, I guess. I mean, the, the first is that one of the things that we tried to do in the review uh, was from the very outset to be very transparent so sometimes what happens in these reviews is that um people kind of disappear into a a room deep in whitehall and you don't really hear much until the review is published and yeah as as jason knows uh, the way that um i conducted this review was to be from the very beginning as open as i possibly could be and indeed the public meetings that we held, I don't think, I'm not sure uh, Jason came to one of them I think, but we held them all over the country, uh, I would stand up at the beginning of them and I would say to people look this is where I'm at at the moment, this is what my thoughts are at this stage, um, but I might change my mind, you know, but I want you to know kind of what my perspective is. So we were We were open in the process throughout, and I think it's important to say because I I guess there's a kind of slight implication of the way Jason's describing the panel, that this is kind of a secret cabal. We we were open from the beginning and open in all our deliberations. Um, The second issue, I guess, is about this question of interest. Um, I understand what Jason's saying is that he would, as it were, have liked to see a review that somehow sought to balance interests. So, you know, possibly we'd have had a representative of an employer organization who would have Uh, who would have kind of stated the formal position of the employer organization and a trade unionist who would have stated the formal position of the trade union and maybe we could have had someone who owned an agency. And we could have all sat in the room restating our kind of basic positions because we'd have been there to represent our interests. But that wasn't the way that we went about it. What I wanted was a review that... Uh, had the expertise that I needed uh, because we didn't have very long. I've got a full-time job, and I wanted people on the review who were able to undertake pieces of work that would contribute to it. So we looked for a solicitor, an employment lawyer, because I wanted somebody who understood the law, and Diane hosted... Uh, a number of legal roundtables. Again, they were kind of open events, uh, not open to the public exactly, but, you know, uh, anyone who wanted to come came along to those. As I said, I think there were trade union representatives, all of them. And again, she openly discussed the ideas we were having and the dilemmas that we had. In fact, you know, at least one of those sessions, we really spent a lot of time talking about real kind of dilemmas that we were having, issues we were trying to resolve. I asked Greg to uh, be on the panel because he was an entrepreneur and because one of the Uh, elements of my terms of reference was to look at business models and to encourage a kind of pluralistic ecology of different types of business models. And uh, uh, he um, undertook and held a number of roundtables, particularly talking to uh, entrepreneurs. He's also a kind of big tech person. So he he was very interested in kind of technology uh, aspects of all of this. And I wanted someone who understood about enforcement. And of course, Paul Broadbent, as chief executive of the um, it's not the Gangmasters and Labour Abuse Authority brought that perspective. Of course, you know, I uh, would be seen and have been seen by certain people as a tainted as a chair because I have a background of politics uh, on the left. I My first job was with the trade union. My master's was in uh, industrial uh, relations. I have many uh, friends and contacts in the trade union movement. So uh, I think there's a difference there. Jason would have wanted, as it were, a group that was representative of interests. I wanted people who had expertise, and those people did a f- fine job, and, as I said, did that very openly. And Paul held a set of roundtables around this question of um, uh, of enforcement. Again, they were open, and again, I spoke openly at them where our thinking uh, was. I really don't think, probably, in the history of these kinds of commissions, there's ever been one that has been so consistently... Uh, open and transparent about the issues as they have um, as they have developed then finally on this question of uh, meeting up with Jason during the process I when mean, I had a conversation with Jason at one of the events and in fact that was when he told me about his view his very strong view that self-employed that workers are self-employed and that's something I took back and asked people about and as I said that wasn't a kind of general point of agreement on the whole I avoided one-to-one uh, conversations I think I had one-to-one conversations with three trade unions and three employer organizations but I rejected innumerable requests from various businesses who wanted to meet me I think Jason was unique in saying that he wouldn't attend a public hearing uh, we you know heard from a whole variety of people uh, I don't I think at just about every one of our sessions we had for example a trade union rep or one of them we had two trade union reps. Um, uh, we even had Uber giving evidence at one of our, uh, events. Um, I think he was the only person who said he wouldn't give evidence unless he could meet one-to-one, uh, first. And I'm sorry that I didn't accede to that, but, you know, that wasn't the way that we, uh, went about the process.
0: I can ask quickly, were the stakeholder meetings open to everybody?
1: Uh, they were widely, the stake, so there were public <coughs> meetings. Um, I think we were going to hold 12, but unfortunately the election kicked in, so we had to get rid of the last couple. But, Uh, Those public meetings were open to anybody who wanted to come, and they joined the audience. And as I said, we had some quite interesting debates, like the one in Coventry, between the kind of happy Uber driver and the miserable Uber driver. Um, And uh, people who wanted to give evidence offered, uh, were invited to give evidence. And in fact, uh, IWGB were invited to join the panel. But as I think, you know, Jason would confirm, his view was he didn't want to do that unless he had met with me one-to-one. And that wasn't, I tried to avoid... Sorry, I was asking about the stakeholder meetings.
0: There there were stakeholder meetings, I think, which were separate from the public meetings.
1: Yeah, there were roundtable meetings. So we invited, you know, I think, you know, we invited a whole variety. So, you know, as I say, the the employment ones, we circulated that widely to the employment law fraternity. And uh, as I said, all those events had at least one trade union representative at them. And then they had lawyers who had a variety of different perspectives. The um, ones that we held on enforcement had a variety of enforcement agencies and trade unions as well. And I think we held one or two uh, around uh, talking to particular entrepreneurs and businesses uh, in this. So we widely distributed that. I think very few people, as far as I know, uh, who wanted to come to any of those events were turned away.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, just briefly, uh, not going to respond to all of that, but just one quick point, which is Matthew sort of portrayed this uh, as he wanted a panel of experts and I wanted one of representative interests. it's not quite how uh, I see it. Uh, I see his panel of experts as being representative of interests, but only one side of those interests. That's the the point I'm trying to make.
0: So, do you do 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 you think that's a fair assessment? That it's only one side of the interests that are.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think look, it, it, this kind of depends, doesn't it, on your interpretation of the review? So, you know, I, I would say that the review, it were it to be fully implemented. Um, would represent the single biggest kind of shift of, you know, shift in regulation and shift towards protecting people at the bottom end of the labour market that we've seen for a generation. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that there are, in fact, I know that there are business interests, employer interests, uh, people in the Conservative Party who are very antagonistic to regulation, who think that the report is, you know, very problematic from their uh, perspective. If you view it in that way, the, the fact that it doesn't really matter... What the backgrounds of the people on the report review were. The question is, what were its recommendations, and were its recommendations fair and reasonable? Now, I understand that Jason's perspective is that the review was a washout, and um, as he said, uh, you know, completely useless. Now, I guess if you have that perspective, then you would say, well, that probably reflects the fact that you didn't like the people who were on the review in the first place. So, I kind of stand in a way by the contents uh, of, of of the review. Um, uh, and the the way in which broadly speaking they have been treated by people who have a reasonably objective view of these of these things um
0: just one thing from me um you didn't i don't think you touched on the greg Marshish or or you did generally i was curious um as to i think jason well I'm happy no, let me let me respond to, just yeah. one thing yeah. and you can go on to your answer yes, as well of course, sorry. um why was it that uh i I know he disclosed to you his 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 stake and You talked about transparency, and
1: why wasn't it disclosed
0: to the public uh, or or to those attending the panels or so on and so forth, if I assume some of them would have found it relevant. uh, uh,
1: Look, to be honest, I didn't make a decision to disclose it or not to disclose it. As far as I was concerned, uh, we asked Greg to sit on the panel. He identified that there was this issue. He agreed to divest divest himself of the shares. And, you know, to be honest... (laughs) My my perspective on these things is that the idea that somebody has a small investment in a company and then divests themselves of those shares means that they're incapable of taking an objective view of what's in the public interest. I just don't have that view, I'm afraid. I, you know, I, I'm we're here at the RSA. We have zero hours workers because we have weddings here, and we have zero hours workers who come and work at our weddings. Now, you know, you could take a view, which mean which is that I am therefore. Not, an elite, not somebody who should be running a review which touches on zero hours workers. You could take the view that as an employer, I'm the chief executive of this organization, I shouldn't be on the review because I have, an, I have the kind of boss's perspective. You can take the view that because I have been a lay Party member for 25 years, I shouldn't run the review because I have a tendency. I just don't have that kind of view. So, you know, clearly, if it was appropriate for Greg to sell his shares, and he did sell his shares... Uh, I think had anybody asked him at any point you know whether he'd had shares he'd been perfectly open about it he never kind of hid it from me or anybody else to be honest the question didn't arise and I think most people would say the fact that somebody had shares then divested themselves of them is not something which disqualifies them from being able to make an intelligent contribution to the debate and I would I'd urge Jason to talk to anybody who were, came across Greg in the public meetings that we held, in the round tables uh, that we held, in the engagement that we held, and, and asked them whether they felt that they, in engaging with Greg, were talking to somebody who was, as it were, incapable of taking an objective view of the issues and the public interest as a consequence of the fact that they once held a small shareholding in one of the companies in that sector.
0: Okay, I want to move on. I don't know if you have anything else to say. Right, we can move on. Um, So uh, minimum wage. I know you, 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 Matthew, wanted to talk about the minimum wage, your minimum wage proposals. Um, Real quick, quite quickly, because we're running out of time. Really, Um, you can tell me if if my understanding of it is 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 correct or incorrect. You'd propose that those on piece rates, the company should, with its data, be able to tell them at what points they could earn around one point two times the national minimum wage or above that, and then. The times when they would earn below that, or below the national minimum wage, that would also be disclosed by the company. And if you take, uh, if you work at those times, uh, then you accept the fact that you're working at those times, and uh, you obviously can't pursue the company, mm-hmm. at, you know, employment tribunal for minimum w- wage violation or through HMRC so or
1: whatever. It, it, I, I I need to be really clear about, about this because it, it, it's a very specific recommendation, and I think people have you know, misunderstood it and thought that it applies more generally. Now, I, I think I should also say that for Jason, this isn't an issue because he believes, his, his view is, as I understand it, that Uber delivery people should be should both have workers' protections and have the advantages of self-employed tax status, okay? So that is a kind of best-of-both-worlds position, and I understand why he would want to adopt that on behalf of his members. I think it's an unlikely position to turn into public policy for a variety of reasons, but nevertheless, that is his hope. Uh, if that wasn't to be the case, though, if Jason's aspirations were not to be fulfilled, um, and it was to be the case as a consequence of the recommendations in our review and uh, as a consequence of the court cases, which uh, Jason has um, successfully uh, pursued uh, or been part of the group that has pursued those cases, if it were to be the case, it would be absolutely clear that people who work for Deliveroo and Uber and other very similar platforms were classified as workers, they would then receive the minimum wage. Now, I think at that point, there is an issue, and that issue is a unique characteristic of some of these platforms, and as Jason points out in his response to my report, not all of these platforms at all, but some of these platforms, is that they allow workers to work whenever they want to. Now, this is very, very unusual. I can't simply rock up to a strawberry farm in February and say, I want to pick strawberries. You know, I can only pick strawberries when the strawberry farm says there are strawberries to be picked. But some of these platforms do say that you can work whenever you want to. And although some of them used to punish people for working at particular times, they claim that. Now, if that claim is erroneous, what I'm saying doesn't apply at all. That is to say, if these platforms do punish people for not working at particular times, do shift them in any way, then our exemption would not apply. But what we say is this, because and and I absolutely must confirm this because it's really important because I know that Jason thinks that somehow... You know we've been got at by these companies this came from speaking to uber drivers and delivery drivers as the part of the process but also just in my kind of day-to-day life in meeting these people it was very important to them for many of them to have this capacity to work when they wanted to work Now. If people have minimum wage and if they have the right to work whenever they want to work, it does create a problem because you could be in a situation where you have very low demand, a huge number of people sign on to work, and their companies argue, and Jason might dis- d- dispute this, that if that were the case, they would have to limit labour supply, they'd have to limit the number of people on their books, they would have to sh- move people onto shifts. And so therefore, in response to that very specific set of circumstances, we suggested the following. Firstly as long as the platform genuinely allows people to work whenever they want to and there is no sanction for them working, not working any particular time. And I think Jason thinks that's not true, for example, of Deliveroo. So that wouldn't therefore apply to them. But as long as, if that is the case, number one, if it's also the case that that company can prove and prove, the emphasis here is on prove, they would have to be proving this in defending themselves from minimum wage claims. So They have to prove it at a level of legal um, uh, satisfaction. If they can prove that the average worker working averagely gets 1.2 times the minimum wage, which is the rule that is applied currently in piecework arrangements, for example, in farming and horticulture, And thirdly, and this is critically important, if the work of themselves is given accurate, and again, the company would have to prove this. It's not a matter of the company giving their own statistics. They would have to demonstrate it to legal satisfaction. They can prove that the person is given accurate information about how much they'll actually earn if they sign on at that time. Then we didn't think it was right to effectively ban workers from working at times when they wouldn't get the minimum wage. We thought that if workers wanted to do that, they wanted on a Tuesday afternoon to say, well, I'll go and sit outside the delivery office, even though I know I'm only going to get paid £4.50 an hour because actually I'm happy to kind of you know, read the paper and do my emails and uh, deliver the occasional pizza. We didn't want to stop that happening, and we were worried that would be the effect of these people being entitled to the minimum okay. wage. Jason? Sorry it's so complex, but we no, spent a lot I'm of time actually, thinking right. about it. No, absolutely. I'm just conscious of time. Jason.
2: Yeah, so d- d- a couple of points just uh, to set the context. Um, One is I'm not aware of any of these courier companies or or, or gig economy firms where the people performing the work genuinely are independent contractors in business on their own account. So even the cases where they can sign on pretty much whenever they want and sign off whenever they want, um, the tribunals have come down and said that they are workers and entitled to minimum wage. So I guess I'm not entirely clear whether Matthew says that in those cases this would still apply or not, but just working with the proposal if it does apply.
1: well, what, what, just on that Jason yes, I mean well, yeah, uh, uh, would, well, no, like but it's important time. but yeah. Uber are appealing and we don't know the delivery judgment so we don't know how those companies you know it may well be that though that judgment is borne out and but we don't know how those companies are going to respond there's, there's
0: yet to be a judgment against yeah and the possibility
1: is the possibility is if those companies do lose those judgments they will move to for example a shift based system and I think some of the delivery I think in other countries has that system so that may be a consequence I was responding to the workers who said to me they did not want to move to a shift based system in trying to come up with this recommendation?
2: Right. So I think there are a number of ways to, to, to address this issue without moving to a shift based system. Um, I mean, the idea that some delivery rider, I mean, I saw in, in, in an interview or whatnot, some delivery rider is going to sit up in bed at two in the morning um, and just wait until maybe they get one delivery, hop out of bed, go do the delivery, come back, sit back in bed, and then hope that that one delivery uh, is going to make the difference between their weekly calculation. so the average comes out um to pushing them from three pounds 75 for that delivery to the minimum wage of seven pounds 50. i find a bit ludicrous um but there are a number of different, you know, the, the first way to try and address this issue uh, is pay uh, a bit more. I mean, it's almost just accept as a given that these people are almost all on poverty wages. So the slightest kind of tweaking or them working a bit more uh, would mean that they'd fall below minimum wage. Uh, the other thing is you don't need to resort to shift patterns. But we do believe that some of these companies need to look a little bit more carefully uh, at how many people they take on. Because they take on so many people that a lot of these people are desperate trying to get jobs, having to spend endless hours waiting for a delivery or, or a ride or whatnot because they're so desperate to get enough money. So these companies, like any company that hires people, needs to think about these things and try and match uh, the supply of labor a little bit better with customer demand. And if that means that during peak times, for example, or busy times, that uh, they can't get enough people to turn up, then they can do surge pricing or, or incentive, uh, you know, incentive pricing or bonus systems um, or calling people to try and get them to, to turn up. I mean, these are all things that the companies already do companies that manage fleets that don't have set shifts, but nevertheless need to ensure supply and demand. So there are a number of different ways to address this. Um, I think if implemented the way it's been explained, uh, for some situations, not all, but for some situations, I think would be a massive step backwards. Now, these companies, the thing that's sort of left out of the picture is that these business models, Uber and Deliveroo, they absolutely depend on people being available at times of low demand and having plenty of people available at times of low demand. So the, you know if you uh, look at the Uber app at your phone at any given time, any given place, you're likely to see four or five guys circling around the block, uh, desperate to pick you up for a ride. Um, same with Deliveroo, you know, they, they want you to be able to order a, a you know, sushi delivered to your office at three in the afternoon, even though it's not peak time. So these business models depend on having those people available. Now, the proposal would allow, conceivably, allow, uh, let's say, a, a woman who has uh, child caring responsibilities uh, and can only work certain hours, and let's say those hours aren't at times of peak demand. And this is the classic example of uh, you know, the, the endless beneficiaries that we hear about in the report from the British way, the flexible labor market, et cetera. So this woman can sign on when she wants. Uh, when she wants is a time of low demand. Uber absolutely depends on people like this woman signing on at times of low demand so that they can cover customer demand. Um, But because uh, the average worker working averagely hard clears nine pounds an hour, because at busy times, the rate brings it up, she could conceivably work for Uber for 10 years and earn four pounds an hour, and there would be no remedy in law. Now, I think that proposal doesn't cut it for that woman. Right now, she is covered. I don't think Uber is going to respond by putting people on set shifts and whatnot, which would risk them falling into employee status. I think they're going to do everything possible to avoid it. We already have a number of examples of same-day delivery companies where there's quite a bit of flexibility, and they just do a much more careful job managing the fleet. So I think there are other ways around it. Um, I think the final point I'll say on this is that the minimum wage legislation as it currently stands, which covers both employees and Limby workers, has quite a bit of flexibility for the courts to adapt it to the working relationships. I think there's four different uh, ways of measuring the working time. Peace rates is one of them. So we're not saying it would never be appropriate in any circumstances to use some sort of peace rate method. Um, what we are saying is that the current approach is working, uh, and as a blanket approach to impose this Piece rate calculation, I think, would be very dangerous and risk a lot of people um, being allowed in law to not earn minimum wage.
0: Could you address that issue regarding the you know, hypothetical woman that has childcare responsibilities and can only work at times of low demand, and therefore would earn below the minimum wage?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a a powerful uh, example. Of course, it, it, this depends upon where we ultimately end up you know, with Uber's appeal, with the delivery case, uh, et cetera. And it depends also upon whether or not those businesses then adjust their business model to try to get back inside what they where they think the law lies. And as I said, they will want to do that, partly because of not wanting to necessarily uh, respect worker rights, but more importantly, because they won't want to have to pay national insurance on their, uh, on their employees. So, I, I, you know, I think Jason and I would just have to kind of agree to differ on this one. I think that... Um, if it were to be the case that on a genuinely on-demand platform where anybody could sign on at any time to work for it, you were guaranteed minimum wage, precisely because there are a lot of people who are short of money, uh, the idea that you could sign on at times when you were unlikely to have to get to work that hard but you were guaranteed minimum wage would attract an awful lot of people. and I would completely understand why because they would want to do that, so I think the companies would therefore have to restrict the number of people who worked or moved to shifts. And maybe that is a trade-off which we need to accept. I think it's a difficult question. We came up with a solution which we tr- which we hoped would combine, protection of employees and uh, flexibility. And you know I think this is a debate that should uh, continue. And n- neither Jason nor I really know how those companies will ultimately respond if they get to the position where they think, as it were, they have to give up fighting worker status and give up fighting national insurance and accept that their workers are like that. I suspect that would lead to quite different uh, business models. The final thing I want to say... have so, yeah.
0: two seconds. I just want to go... Do you have anything to answer to that, to those answers? No, so do I have to okay. say. I just want to go really quickly. I know, I know we're really short on time, but I think it's really important that the... the, the Final, last. Considering what's happened recently, uh, the Supreme Court's just, uh, judgment on employment tribunal fees. For those of you that don't know, uh, a few years ago, the coalition government brought in uh, employment tribunal fees. That is, if you want to take your employer to court for em- employment law issues, um, you have to pay. Uh, now, the the Supreme Court's ruled that these uh, fees are discriminatory and illegal. Um, you had tried to address this, and I, I think in a, in a more, um, let's say. Mo- moderated uh, way, you didn't ask for the full elimination of tribunal fees, now the Supreme Court's ruled this way. Do you have any regrets? No, of course,
1: course, you know, we we were aware of the Supreme Court case. Um, I think the judgment that we made, and there are a number of recommendations around the employment tribunal process, and uh, uh, in Jason's response to our review, uh, he recognizes that Although he, again, which is a, 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 a recurrent theme in, in Jason's commentary, he would like us to be more specific. He recognises that those other uh, reforms that we recommend for employment tribunal could be useful, um, increasing the uh, penalty on employers, uh, for example. And we had suggested a pre-hearing, which would have been free for employees for workers to get their employment status checked. Um, I didn't, and you know this is my judgment, and you know actually. Uh, You know, maybe it was the wrong judgment. What I didn't do in the review was say, the government must get rid of employment tribunal fees. Although we said in the review that we thought they were too high and we regretted them being high and we wanted the government to continue to review it. What I didn't do was say, you must get rid of these fees. And the reason for that was because I thought that if that was going to the headline that was the headline recommendation of the review, given the government's existing policy, it would simply say, well, that's not our policy. And that undermines the credibility of the review as a whole. So the position that I took, knowing the Supreme Court ruling was coming and hoping that the outcome would be exactly what the outcome has been, to suggest some mitigating uh, policies, if that hadn't been the outcome of the review, to encourage the government to continue to look at this policy, but not to have a head-on confrontation. Now, that goes to the overall approach, and I want to be completely clear about this, if, if, if this is my kind of final comments, T- two final comments, if I might. The review is, as Jason recognizes, much more wide-ranging than the issues that we've been talking about today. It is a strategy to improve the quality of work across the British economy, I'm pleased that it has led to a lively debate about what good work is and what we should expect every job to be. And um, a whole number of different initiatives have sprung up, even since the review has been published, to explore this question of good work. Um, so it's a much broader uh, kind of strategy and including a lot of measures which aren't things which demand immediately, immediate legislative action. And I think that Jason's view is that recommendations that don't demand immediate legislative action aren't really worth much. And we have to disagree about that as well. That's not my view of how change uh, takes place. Secondly, I do think it's important to say that whilst there are major problems with, uh, there are major problems in the labour market, and indeed that's why the review was set up, and I talk about those problems and the need to tackle exploitation, that Actually, our employment record in this country is good, that we have higher employment than we've ever had, that we have lower unemployment than we've had for a a generation, that survey after survey finds that most people in atypical forms of work say that they choose those atypical forms of work. Not all of them by any means, but uh, those surveys show that the majority of people And and indeed, those people who don't like those forms of work don't like them because they would like to be working in a different way, not necessarily because of the experience they've actually got of the atypical work. It's also important to notice that because the labor market is tight, because we are good at creating jobs, we are in a great position now, which is at the moment, wages are rising fastest amongst the lowest paid. So the combination of the national uh, living wage and the tightness of the labor market means that at the moment, it's the bottom deciles of the labor market distribution where wages are rising fastest. And I hope that's something which continues for a while because it it certainly needs uh, to happen. And then that goes to my third point. I'm unapologetic about the fact that the review was an attempt to identify a set of measures which I thought could be implemented. Not a set of measures that I might imagine would be in a perfect world if I was to be kind of president of the universe and able to dictate everything. But Those things which fitted into kind of two overlapping circles, and this is really how I've spent my whole life, which is why I'm a kind of, you know, would be viewed by many people as being a kind of terrible kind of moderate reformist. Uh, That is the things that that fit into the overlapping circles of what is progressive and what is possible given current economic and social political realities, and that's what we recommended in in the review. I understand because Jason says it a lot in his response that. He's much more enamored with the recommendations that the Labour Party had in its manifesto and the IER has had in its proposals. And, you know, I understand that. And that's that's a difference. But in many areas, including this question of employment tribunal fees, what I sought to do was to avoid putting in recommendations that would immediately lead to the government saying, no, we're not going to do that. Because now I think, and this is my final point, now... We're in a very interesting situation. Jason and I can continue to have this debate, and I've valued this conversation over the next two or three months as the government prepares its response, because people are expecting a response, and the pressure is on the government to respond. An alternative, and this is what's happened with innumerable government reviews before, is that I'd have published my review, the government would have said, thanks very much, but we're not really going to do that, and we would have had a bit of a row, and the world would have moved on. So that was a choice that I made, and uh, if you think that we should be trying to influence the government in power... You'll agree with me if you think that the government in power is pretty hopeless and we need an alternative government, then you probably won't. I understand that. Okay.
2: Yeah, so a, a few points this, my final comments as well. Um, the In certain interviews and articles or whatnot, it seems like um, Matthew sort of paints us as saying, you know, we wanted the ideal world, the ideal outcome and whatnot, um, and we're disappointed because we didn't get that. Uh, and he instead focused on things that were feasible um, and implementable, which would still affect real change. Um, Now, I don't have a hard time uh, with that approach. I think it's just a matter of degree, because we've been focusing our efforts uh, not on uh, advocating uh, vociferously for every single policy that we think will make um, uh, you know, workers' uh, time in the gig economy uh, a paradise. We've instead been focusing on a few very simple, straightforward, we think extremely reasonable um, policies that we think would make a big difference. And those three, which I said at the beginning, uh, are to eliminate employment tribunal fees, uh, which resulted in a 70% decline in cases, um, have rigorous government enforcement of existing law, and uh, increase the number of employment rights that LIMBY workers have uh, to account for the fact that it seems like a growing proportion of the workforce may be falling into this category. And we've only advocated increasing them uh, uh, to, the, to the level that employees have, so not uh, anything that's you know dramatically out of whack with, with the current employment law regime. So the fact that these proposals are quite moderate and, uh, I would say, Uh, not over the top or unrealistic or uh, unfeasible um, or or too revolutionary can be seen that The Economist, uh, which like Matthew deeply cherishes the uh, flexible labor market, uh, endorsed half of them. They called for half of the same proposals we did. Uh, And the Supreme Court in the unanimous decision of a panel of seven justices uh, came down very clearly uh, on the side of uh, workers in the employment tribunal fee regime. In fact, they were so clear, almost every point that was argued on behalf of the workers was one, Uh, and the Supreme Court said uh, that the fee regime was a breach of EU law, it was a breach of UK law, uh, and it was discriminatory against women. So given that context, of course, no one knew what the judgment was going to be before it came out, but the arguments uh, that were used in the judgment had been made over and over and over by unions. That's, I think, a classic example uh, of why I find this report so disappointing. Um, It's not to say that every recommendation is bad or will make things worse or none of them will make any difference. Uh, We do recognize there are a couple uh, recommendations or a couple elements of recommendations that we think are good or spot on. Um, There are a couple that we do think would make things worse. Uh, But our overall uh, response is that it's just most of it, it lacks an incredible amount of substance and detail to the, extent, to the point that it's, it's, it's quite difficult to evaluate whether it'll make a difference or not. And those recommendations that do have a bit more detail, um, for example, reversing uh, the burden of proof in employment status cases for a number of reasons we think won't really make much of a difference at all. Um, Now, just to come back on the point about, uh, you know, survey after survey shows that workers in the so-called gig economy choose this form of work, or or I guess the implication is that they're happy with this form of work. Um, We don't necessarily, I mean, we've asked to see these survey results. We haven't seen them. But prima facie, we don't necessarily dispute that. Lots of our members, everyone who runs the couriers and logistics branch of the IWGB, um, they're all couriers or food delivery workers. Uh, Lots of them uh, like how they work. They like the flexibility. Um, they like that they have a bit more autonomy than a standard employee would. It, that's not mutually incompatible with them wanting to have additionally a fair wage and basic rights to which they're entitled to under law, such as holidays and pension contributions from their employer, um, and this sort of thing. So I think.
1: Which I agree about.
2: Right. So so I think it's you know we and that's a point of agreement. Um, we're not calling for. Uh, You know, the abolition of of the third category of employment status. We're not calling for uh, abolishing the so-called gig economy. We're calling for uh, an improvement in workers' rights, but more than anything, that the current workers' rights that these people are legally entitled to are enforced and that the rights are meaningful and not just empty words in a statute book.
1: I'm surprised. Okay, I mean, sure. I am just surprised. On the, well, I thought on, we had on, final words. Well, but, no, uh, no, uh, no, I'm I guess. Ju- I hope uh, we have this room booked for a bit longer. Uh, no, whatever. <laughs> no, we'll just have for a couple more minutes. There's, there's, <laughs> a, there's. A, there's a, a, I, I just, I, I'm slightly concerned if people listening to this who aren't, who haven't read the review or whatever, will think that there is, as it were, nothing of specificity in it. I mean, I would just give two or three examples. So the report recommends the abolition of something called the Swedish derogation, which is a widely used method in which uh, agencies managed to circumvent the expectation that agency workers would get the same terms and conditions as permanent employees after 12 weeks. That's a long-standing trade union uh, request. Uh, the review suggests that every uh, employee and worker should be given a specification, and a basic plain English account of their terms and conditions on the first day of employment. The review recommends that uh, zero hours workers, casual workers, be told of their right to roll up holiday Pay. Now, that effectively means that if they choose to roll up holiday pay, they'll get a 12.07% increase in their wages. Now, that arguably was a right they had before, but very, very few people were aware of it. So, we know that the vast majority of casual workers didn't know that they had that right to holiday pay. Jason makes the point in his report that won't this lead to people working 365 days a year? But I think we actually specify in the report that. You know, this uh, uh, capacity for casual workers to roll a holiday pay would not cut across the fact that you also have to have limits on how many hours people can work and the fact that they need to take holidays. But the reality is, hundreds of thousands of people are not getting this basic entitlement, and it will make a real difference to their uh, take-home. Uh, pay. So that's just, I'm just picking out three yeah, I mean, I of, a, of a whole a variety a of, of, of those things. But I want you yeah, but, I'm, but I'm, ju- uh, yeah, off no, I'm just, I'm only, so, I'm only, I'm only saying house. those things because uh, listening to the grand sweep of the program, I wouldn't want people to think there's no specificity no, in that proposal. No,
0: no, absolutely. And I think you have something to say about that as well.
2: Yeah. So it, it, I started by saying that there were a couple suggestions that we thought were good and spot on, a couple that we thought uh, were bad would make things worse. And the rest, we say the majority are uh, lacking substance in detail. Um, now, the agency workers falls into the category. We don't have many members that are agency workers. We don't have much expertise. so I'll leave the commenting on that. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'll leave it to someone else. Um, but the other two examples, or uh, one example of one of uh, the ones we say is good, and one example of the one of the ones that we say is bad. So we wouldn't say that either of those two examples on the section one statement uh, of employment particulars on rolled up holiday, both of those are examples uh, uh, where they are specified and have detail. Um, And giving the right to Limby workers to have a a written statement of their employment particulars on day one um, is, we say, spot on. We say that in our reply. Uh, We say it's already a requirement as a matter of EU law, and we have a test case that's um, arguing that. But if we were to lose that case, uh, or if this comes up uh, to Parliament before our case is decided... Uh, we say excellent, specific and spot on. Rolled up holidays, uh, there's definitely specificity in detail, but this is one of the ones uh, that we disagree with. Um, We think that, you know, you said there are limits on working time and whatnot, uh, but it's important to look at the context of how holiday legislation came into the UK, came in through EU law on health and safety grounds. um, And the EU law is uh, quite specific about the fact that the, the point is to give paid time off. I think it would be difficult to implement this um, while we're still bound by EU law. Maybe not impossible, but quite complicated giving the words uh, of the directive.
1: But Jason, we're just just to clarify, we're talking here primarily about people who are working relatively few hours a week. So this is not a question of them not having their holiday entitlement. It's a question of the fact that those workers did not know and quite a few unscrupulous employers and agencies made sure they didn't know that they were entitled to holiday pay, accrued holiday pay for the... So even if you work for half a day, you build up a notional entitlement to holiday pay, and that was being widely disregarded. So this is not about people who are working 40 hours a week choosing to disregard their holiday entitlement and have holiday pay. This is about people working casually, working a few hours... And them having the right to say, well, actually, I only work casually a few hours. I don't really. Holiday is not really the issue for me because I only work a few hours or I only work for a few months of the year. This will enable them to take that holiday entitlement as a significant increase in their take-home pay, and that is of real significance to them. So I would urge you just to uh, understand what lies behind that a bit more.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of these people do work long hours. Some of them, of course, work. Short hours. Um, in the Uber tribunal, uh, I think there was one of the week uh, weeks of data that was in the tribunal record from the lead claimant James Farrar. Um, he had a ninety-hour week.
1: Right, but most zero hours workers are part-time workers, and 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 I think one of the differences in in us in the report is that I probably put more emphasis on zero-hours workers than on gig workers, because the thing I was most worried about was what I called one-way flexibility. That's where the flexibility lay, lay entirely on the, felt like it lay entirely on the employer's side and not on the employee's side. And as I went around the country, I did hear from gig workers, but much more I heard from people talking about those people who would turn up for work and there wouldn't be any work. Uh, those people who felt that if they said boo to a goose because they didn't have rights of unfair dismissal, for example, or rights of representation, uh, that they would not long, no longer be given hours. So the, the issue that was most profoundly represented to me as I went around the country was insecure workers who who felt that the flexibility didn't work for them. And, and that's probably, there's probably more in the report that's around those people experiencing that one-way flexibility, people who do not have complete freedom to choose when they work, unlike gig workers, for example, but who rely on a particular employer in a particular locality uh, to protect them.
2: Yeah, and... We uh, agree with uh, a fair amount of the diagnostic of that problem that you just described, but I, and I think that's part of the reasoning why we're skeptical about uh, something that would allow rolled-up holidays. Um, nothing better represents the asymmetrical bargaining power than zero-hours workers who we say are employees. Um, for example, the catering staff at the University of London who have their hours, unlike someone who works at Deliveroo or Uber, have their hours imposed on them um, and can only work the hours they're allowed to work. Uh, they don't have much bargaining power, and our concern with this is that there would be plenty of examples of people who might want to have the time off but are told, um, no, we're short-staffed, uh, we need you to come in over the Christmas break, uh, you can't have your right to uh, annual leave uh, because it's rolled up. And if you don't sign here saying you accept the fact that it's rolled up and you just got a supplement to your pay, um, you know, then you don't have a job. So that, that's that, that's our concern. The other concern, as yeah. I said, is but I just think to this should
1: It's the right to have your holiday pay rolled up. It's not the requirement for you to do that. Right. Anyway, but, but we'll just have to choice
2: choice become can become a, a, a hypothetical idea uh, when the asymmetrical bargaining power is so extreme.
1: Which is why it's important to be very clear day one that you do have that choice and you have a legal entitlement to and it. Anyway, look, I'm sorry, we've, no, we've, no, no, it's we've no, gone it's, it's on. No, th- it's, nice, it's, nice it's, it's, it's nice to and be I think sitting also, opposite you and smiling. I think,
0: <laughs> I think also that is also what you're saying is also one of the reasons why enforcement is so important because of the asymmetrical bargaining power.
1: Uh, yeah, and one line on that, one of the reasons we didn't talk about enforcement quite as much as we could, although we did have a chapter about it, is that there is a new director of labour market enforcement and uh, he published his strategy, in fact, the week before Uh, last. uh, I wouldn't absolutely agree. I think that there is a, you know, I think that the enforcement minimum wage uh, is growing, is developing, and we do recommend that HMRC also expand that remit to other elements of the basic pay of people on uh, minimum wage. And also, of course, and this is something we haven't talked about at all, but we want a much enhanced role for the Low Pay Commission, a body which is, by the way, a tripartite body, that is to say the trade unions are represented in the Low Pay Commission, in looking across the board at the quality of work and, and a working life of people in low-paid sectors like hospitality, catering, uh, and, and social care. That would be a, a major shift as well. But I, I'm very happy to uh, leave the last word to Jason and say that genuinely it's been a good... I think you're having the last word now. Genu- no, I'm sure he'll <laughs> want one more. He's writing things down. And, but genuinely, I've found this a useful conversation. And Jason, I hope that we can continue to talk in these terms rather than the slightly more shrill terms that sometimes have been adopted on Twitter
2: um yeah if i'm gonna have the last word um well he so graciously gave
0: it to you <laughs> <laughs> i'll
2: be dynamic and uh, magnanimous and leave matthew with the last word
0: well so i'm, I'm having the last word then um well i want to thank you both uh for this um i guess obviously there's a lot of things that obviously is interesting from both sides i think a lot of things that you mentioned that you left out of the report which you would want to add to it maybe we're gonna have taylor too turn Taylor. It, I doubt, I doubt Taylor it. strikes
1: back. I've got a day job. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's. that's it's the, the government implementation we need to wait for
0: now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just actually one curious, out of my personal curiosity, is is there any scope? Because you said obviously some things that you're having discussions now, which you might want to make some changes in the future. Is there any scope for kind of amendments before government implementation comes Yeah, no, into place? I think the
1: government's going to be. I mean, it's not for me to interfere now. I've handed the report over to them. And, right. Uh, they will no doubt undertake their own processes and decide who they're going to engage with. And. I would expect they'll come back and they'll say, well, of the 54 recommendations, you know, X will be implemented as specified, Y will be implemented, but we're going to change them, and Z will be thrown in the bin. And, you know, that's that's the way of these things. But I think the good thing is that because the review wasn't dismissed out of hand, this is a debate we can continue to have for the next two or three months. Great. So you're hoping that the government's
0: going to implement much of it?
1: Yeah. I, well, obviously, I hope so. I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't have produced a review without the aspiration that some of it was actually implemented.
0: Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you both. And... Uh Thank you for listening. You've been very patient listeners. Thanks a lot. <laughs> That's not <laughs> very <heck>. nice. <laughs>